0: I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I, uh, <clears throat> I apologize in advance if I if I end up having a coughing fit. I was sick with a cold last week, and it's mostly gone, but I'm I'm still having some lingering coughs here and there. Um, I, I appreciate everyone making it out here today. It uh, is California cold, you know, Southern California cold. It's Gosh, I think it's, what, in the 60s, guys? We're freezing, right? But, uh, you know, for a place that can easily reach the hundreds, 60-anything uh, is pretty cold for us. Last night, guys, I had to use a blanket. One blanket. It was very cold. It was maybe 39, 38 degrees. So uh, so I'm, I'm glad we're not all freezing, but I see people are wrapped up with blankets, and that's helpful. Uh, my, my topic today... Is uh, the nature of insight, and I was uh, thinking about this a lot this past month because last month, during my, my talk then, I was asked a question about thoughts and insight, and generally the idea of well I mean, if we 're concentrating in, in meditation and, and we 're we're quieting thoughts, then then how do the insights come and uh, you know, I I gave an answer then about the uh, the quality of insight being maybe different than the ordinary thoughts we usually have come in uh, throughout the day, and certainly the the kinds that come up during meditation. But I, I thought it'd be beneficial to to cover the term insight or vipassana uh, thoroughly, more thoroughly uh, today, because when we're new to to Buddhism, we hear a lot of terms sometimes in English and sometimes in in Pali or Sanskrit or whatever and uh, we don't know how these terms relate to each other we don't know which terms are synonymous with each other or have overlapping meaning which ones are in conflict with each other or not Um, so that's why vipassana would be a good topic today especially the way it is often um, contraposed with uh, say samatha or tranquility. Um, so I, I will I will start first with uh, just a, a definition of vipassana. This is from Bhante Gunaratana's Mindfulness in Plain English. Uh, I like this book because it's really nuts and bolts manual on meditation, and he he breaks down the meaning of a lot of these terms. <clears throat> and very early on in the book, on page 27... He discusses what vipassana means for him. And he says that the whole meaning of the word vipassana is looking into something with clarity and precision, seeing each component as distinct, and piercing all the way through to perceive the most fundamental reality of that thing. This process leads to insight into the basic reality of whatever is being examined. So the short version of this is to say that vipassana, or insight, is seeing deeply into the nature of existence. And so that, at the end, is my my own short definition of the term. And when we discuss meditation in in Buddhism, we're we're very, very quick to put all of meditation into two boxes, two labels, because we like boxes and we like labels. And so we put any type of, of meditation that seems to be geared towards mindfulness and insight into the Vipassana box and anything that seems to encourage tranquility or calmness or silence as samatha. And, and we talk about the two as, as very distinct, as if there's no overlap there. <clears throat> now, in my experience, I have practiced meditations that I would say are almost exclusively Samatha and that's when I was still very much a dabbler in various forms of meditation and and in various spiritual practices and I stumbled upon a Hindu tradition and I say that it's Samatha practice in that case because the goal of the meditation was very different from what I would say the goal of Buddhist meditation is. In that for various Hindu meditative traditions, their goal is unity with the divine. And so in that group that I had joined and I was practicing with, that was their goal in meditation. And so you have a mantra that you're given that you use or, you know, the breath, or oftentimes in, in concert with each other, one part of the mantra said with the in-breath, the other part of the mantra said with the out-breath, and so it goes. <clears throat> and you do this practice essentially for the rest of your life. It, it doesn't uh, go much further than that in terms of, of the technique. The experiences change over time. I found that when I was practicing in this way, I I would find states of very, very deep peace and very deep tranquility and calmness of mind. And I was told in that tradition that when you experience that, it's because you're experiencing the divine. But as I expanded what I was looking at, my studies and various opinions on this type of meditation, I found that the mantras themselves really didn't matter. What you were doing really didn't matter. Having a concentrated mind is having a concentrated mind. So the, the mantra that was used seemed important, but whatever that was, and I won't share it with you today, but <clears throat> um, whatever that was, you would say on the in-breath, say on the out-breath, Concentrate your, your attention to the, what they would call like the third eye area, the, one of the chakras, and you do that. Uh, but the truth is, it's just as effective to not concentrate anything here, and you can use the mantra, peanut butter, and it'll still do the same thing. You can say peanut on the in-breath, butter on the out-breath, and you'll pretty much have the same sense of tranquility. Concentrating the mind is concentrating the mind. And I, I think that that's what the, the Buddha was talking about in terms of, of concentration. It's a, it's a useful tool that, when done properly, uh, can suppress uh, the hindrances, suppress a lot of the negative qualities that arise in the mind that prevent something like insight or the development of wisdom to take place. So uh, the relationship between Vipassana and Samatha. They're not, uh, in my opinion, mutually exclusive kinds of meditation. Because I say that because sometimes they're represented that way, as if there was, there was this type and then there was this type taught by the Buddha and they have nothing to do with each other. I think it's more accurate to say that there are many traditions that do samatha practice, that still the mind, you find tranquility, you find peace, maybe not a whole lot of wisdom or at least the kind of wisdom that Buddhism is concerned with, in those kind of meditations, but to say that Buddhist meditation doesn't focus on that tranquility might be inaccurate, and when it's phrased that way to people new to Buddhism, it might be misleading. With the truth being that vipassana or any type of meditation that that gives a, gives rise to insight and wisdom always has a component of samatha or tranquility to it. In fact. In my own study of, of the, the, the Pali texts, I read translations, but I, I trust the translators. Um, I haven't found really much in the way of the Buddha teaching Vipassana and Samatha as distinct practices. Instead, what I have found is them being presented as qualities of skillful meditation. In that way, we might be talking about meditation not not as something that falls into two distinct boxes, but rather one kind of Buddhist meditation with multiple expressions, because that is what you find in the Pali Canon in the Theravada tradition, that the Buddha would teach meditation always toward tranquility and insight, always toward skillful mindfulness and concentration, but whatever that object was might change. Sometimes it's the breath, sometimes it's metta, sometimes it's various sensations in the body, mental objects. And all of these things, as objects, help us, when we concentrate on them in the proper way, find insight. So, in my experience, I have found that samatha, as tranquility meditation, alone does not work in the goal of, of finding wisdom, but vipassana always has a component of samatha, or tranquility, to it. So with, with that groundwork set, now I feel like maybe I can talk about vipassana on its own, insight on its own. What are we attempting to do in meditation, in Buddhist meditation? So my example will then be with what I meditate in, which is Anapanasati, meditation of the breath. I understand that the people here today might come from various traditions, have their own meditation practices, they might not use the breath, they might use something else. But I I use this as an example of how meditation can quite clearly have elements of vipassana and elements of samatha. Uh, so to that end, I, I'm going to share some passages with you from uh, Breath by Breath. And so you can see how terms can be a little misleading. The, the title they chose for this is The Liberating Practice of Insight Meditation. But then when you read the back of the book, they'll, they'll fully say that it's the Buddhist teaching on cultivating both tranquility and deep insight. Both. And in the back of the book, in one of the, uh, the appendices, they have a translation of the Anapanasati Sutta. Right? This comes out of the, the Majjhima Nikaya. And the Buddha's own explanation of in and out breathing as the focus of meditation goes like this. Mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued is of great fruit, of great benefit. Mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued brings the four foundations of mindfulness to perfection. The four foundations of mindfulness when developed and pursued bring the seven factors of awakening to their culmination. The seven factors of awakening when developed and pursued perfect clear insight and liberation. So that small paragraph on its own could be uh, an entire series of lessons. Because then it would be talking about, you know, the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness, Satipatthana, right? That by itself would be a, a series of classes. Same thing with the seven factors of awakening. Uh, but I will tell you what those seven factors are. The seven factors of awakening are mindfulness, investigation, persistence, rapture, serenity, concentration, and equanimity. So if mindfulness, as part of the Eightfold Path, can be either equated or very similar to something like insight, then we find that it's one of the seven factors of awakening, not the only quality that needs to be focused on, but one of many. And we find the same thing with concentration, one of many. I illustrate that point because it's becoming quite common in the United States to only focus on mindfulness as if concentration is not a component. And then even when concentration is a component, they act as if those are the only two. And we see that there are many factors, many qualities that must arise in us, be developed, nurtured in us to reach the goal. It's also uh, becoming uh, a concern of mine, um, maybe not everyone's, that there are those who propose mindfulness meditation or insight meditation as the entirety of the path. And I, I won't reiterate this point again because I, I believe I already I gave a talk about this. That the the path of of Buddhism is is more than just the meditation. We we talk about the, the three factors of the Eightfold Path being uh, you know, it being sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila being our conduct or discipline or disposition, depending on how it's translated. Samadhi being the, the kind of meditation one might do, uh, you know, various concentrative states <clears throat> that, when done properly, will lead us to insight. And the insight itself can as- assist us with developing panya, or wisdom. All of those are necessary. Those three, I've often talked about them as being a tripod, right? Mutually supportive. The same goes when we discuss something like meditation. We find another tripod, let's say, in the form of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. We can break those down further, and when we do, we find in it, Effort, right effort, skillful effort, being about cultivating proper mind states, uh, looking at at negative mind states, and looking at positive mind states, and and making efforts to develop one and to uh, break up the, the roots that cause the other. Mindfulness being much more than just insight, but all the various things that we bring together when we sit. Mindfulness also has, or rather sati, also has an aspect of remembering. So when we sit to meditate, we bring up with us all of the various lessons we have learned following the path, the various readings we have done, the various dhamma talks we have listened to, the the, the various uh, insights we've had from previous meditations, all of that, we bring forward into the next sitting, the next sitting. and has a a culminating effect. And then samadhi as a kind of concentration. People hear concentration, and I, I often worry that maybe in the West we're so quick to dismiss concentration because concentration sounds so difficult. It sounds like work. We have a tendency to think that concentration is something that we got to do like this like it's like it's lifting weights or something you know it's it's something that when you do it the right way you're you're dripping with sweat and that's actually not the case we might look at the translation of samadhi as meaning more like collectedness or bringing together or tranquility or stillness and when we look at it that way, we see the, the gentle nature of concentration. And that means that we, we can apply it to our meditation that way, not as something that we have to struggle with, not as something that we have to fight with, but it, simply a, a bringing together of all the wholesome qualities of mind that we seek to, to, to cultivate, seek to have grow and, and flourish in us, Now, insight, uh, as I said before, is, I think anyway, a, an aspect of proper meditation, skillful meditation, in the Buddhist sense. But we shouldn't think of insight as various thoughts we have. I know that that early on in in my own meditation, when I began practicing vipassana as a technique, and maybe that's a misnomer, either calling it a technique or calling it vipassana, uh, we might just call it meditation. And when I began this kind of meditation in the Theravada tradition, I didn't know what insight was. I thought, because I have a background in Western philosophy, it's a kind of thinking, it's a kind of contemplation. I should be sitting here and just thinking about my life. And that's not meditation. That's thinking. That's contemplation, which is not something wrong. It's just not what we're attempting to do when we sit and meditate. Contemplation can be a useful tool, but if all we do when we sit is think, then we we have we have a mind that is that is unfocused, unconcentrated and uh perhaps even scattered. And the thoughts that come up might be really important. Most of the thoughts probably won't be and trying to keep track of it all can be very challenging. Which is why in Buddhism we often talk about the quality of like say monkey mind, you know. You sit down and you expect uh, a still tranquil mind and you you find that that's not What happens at the onset, what happens for at least the first few years of meditation is a mind that's chaos might be too strong of a word, but thoughts all over the place. And after a few years, it gets a little quieter so that it's only really that noisy for the first 20, 30 minutes of meditation and then it starts to settle down. And it might be like that forever for at least for the rest of your life. I find that I still have that aspect when I sit and meditate, where the first few minutes it's still this settling process, still a lot of thoughts all over the place, and they can be really great thoughts, they can be really profound thoughts. Uh, I would not say that what happens in those first 20 minutes are insights into anything. I used to think so, and I'd get really excited, and I'd I'd have a notepad, and I'd start writing stuff down. Like I had this great thought, guys, and I'd write that down, and then I'd close the book, and i like, this is going to be important. And, uh, you know, I, I, I go back now, and I find old notebooks of mine, and I open it up, and I mean, it's either useless or trivial or obvious or any version of that, and it's not really anything profound in the, in the sense of anything, any thought that's going to lead me toward liberation. They're just kind of bumper sticker quotes, which are cool, but not maybe not insight. So, what I what I have found is that the kind of wisdom we're trying to cultivate in meditation is not the same thing as intelligence, it's not the same thing as knowledge, it's not the same thing as thinking. When we meditate, we're coming into contact with the very fabric of our lives, the sense doors of our, of our taste, our touch, our smell, our hearing, Um, our sight, and, of course, the sense door of the mind. We're investigating all of them. And there's a very intimate relationship there. It's, It's not abstract. It's not something that we think about or speculate about. It's something that we see ourselves. It's so intimate, I would say, that it's prior to thought. Afterward, we might try to put thoughts to those experiences, put thoughts to those insights. And when shared with others, they might get the impression that the insights were always based in thought. And that might lend to the confusion. I also make the comparison, too, with the way a, a Buddha or an Arahant experiences the state of Nibbana and then finds themselves with absolutely no way of, of putting the, putting Nibbana into words. The Buddha himself said that the state of Nibbana was completely indescribable. He could say maybe what it was like, what it was not like, but he could never impart someone with the experience of it. They could only do that work themselves. So even with the Buddha, he couldn't just like, hey, this is what it feels like. And if you get that feeling, there, there you go. You have it. I mean, even if he said that, eh, they, that alone wouldn't help you find that feeling. You have to search yourself, your mind, your senses, your body, and, and see into the reality of it. And it is so intimate. It is not the same thing as thinking about the body, thinking about the mind. And trust me, as someone who studied Greek philosophy forever and thought about being a professor of ancient philosophy, I really wish it was just about thinking. I really wish it was just about philosophizing. But the truth of the matter is, is that if philosophy alone gave you liberating wisdom, then any philosopher who really thought hard about abstract things for long enough would be enlightened would be liberated. And that's not what I have found, neither in studying uh, the histories of philosophers, both Western and Eastern, and also in studying philosophy myself. I have built up the ability to think about very abstract things. I mean, I remember studying advanced metaphysics with my professor in college, who himself graduated think it was, was he from, I think he had his PhD, it was either Princeton or Oxford, somewhere really prestigious. So he could think about really abstract stuff. When he thought about advanced metaphysics, he thought about it all in symbolic form, which looks like a cat stepped on a calculator, right? That's how he thought about stuff. And I I wouldn't call that um, wisdom, I would call that knowledge. And we can cultivate knowledge. Anyone who becomes a scholar of anything is cultivating knowledge. But scholarship is not always enough to find liberation. That's why even if someone becomes a scholar of Buddhism, they may not themselves become liberated. There are many scholars in many universities who have spent their lives translating text after text after text after text and they know them very well backwards and forwards they they could quote things better than i can better than many of the people in this room can and yet all of this knowledge that they've accumulated they've never actually applied and the application going back to that tripod comes to our day-to-day interactions with others through sila it comes through our, our meditation through samadhi and it, it comes through our understanding and thinking that is informed by those two in the form of Panya, and together they they culminate in the path, which is not an intellectual endeavor. One story I came ac- across recently that, that I thought encapsulated this so well uh, is actually a, a Zen story, but I think that uh, most Buddhists would uh, would agree with it, and in in the Zen story, uh, one of the the patriarchs is, uh, is is sitting in a meditation hall, and uh, and he's sitting there quietly, peacefully, and very nearby, um, one of the uh, one of the nuns is studying the suttas, and she's studying and studying and studying and studying. And she comes across uh, a character that she doesn't understand, and so I'm assuming uh, this is uh, taking place in Japan. So she's reading translate, she's reading uh, either in Sanskrit or Japanese, and she she comes across something, a word, a phrase she doesn't understand, and she approaches the the patriarch of her tradition and says, "You know, I've I've come across this this one word. Um, I really don't understand it. I, I thought maybe you could you could help me." And he tells her, well, quite frankly, um, I don't know how to read. And she's taken aback, and, and she says, but how can someone so wise as you not have read the, the suttas? And he says, well, because the, the cultivation of wisdom and the understanding of the Dhamma is, is not understood in words alone. Right? And, and I agree with that with that kind of thinking. And for someone who is so geared towards scholarship and academia, someone who has a background in, in philosophy and who has read very thick tomes and spent a lot of time writing papers on them, to say after the fact that the way to liberation is not so much about that as it is to the, the intimate understanding one finds when one turns within, is a profound statement, and it is, it is having to swallow a lot. Because it would be great if I could say that liberation and insight is about how great someone can think. Because as someone who's fairly intellectual and arguably intelligent, um, I, I would be really ahead of the game. But I always remember that the Buddha gave the Dhamma to the world as something that anyone regardless of circumstance, regardless of caste, regardless of mental faculty, could apply to their own lives and find liberation. In the Suthas, uh, I I apologize for not knowing uh, which one, Um, there was was a student of the Dhamma who uh, was of of a very simple mind. And Sariputta was trying to to teach him in in the way he knows. And if you know anything about Sariputta, he's he was like the preeminent scholar of that time. The Buddha had two main disciples, and Sariputta was the one who himself had, which was just such a scholar and of an intellectual mindset. And so he had the student that. He was trying to teach him the same way, and he was trying to teach him meditation the way he understood it. And as wise and knowledgeable as a teacher as he was, he just couldn't crack this nut. And he had to turn to the Buddha and say, you know, Lord Buddha, I, I'm, I'm trying to teach this, this student, and uh, he's, just, he's just not getting it. And he was trying to teach him th- this profound meditation on, on the impermanence and the body and decay and things like that, and the guy wasn't getting it. So the Buddha invites him over, this, this, uh, this young student, and gives him a, uh, a flower. And he says, just, just meditate on the flower. And through meditation of the flower, which is a much simpler meditation, not as intellectual, not as focused on impermanence at the onset, led him to the same teachings on impermanence. As he watched this flower that was beautiful get old, yellowed, wilt, decay, and die he learned the same lesson in a much simpler way. He received an insight that was not based in the intellect or in knowledge or in scriptures. He saw it himself with his own eyes in the world. And when we're talking about truth in the Buddhist sense, that's absolutely the kind of truths we're discussing. Because as I've stated before, there is this perfect example in the suttas where the Buddha held some leaves in his hands and he commented to his students, hey, where do you think the most leaves reside? In my hand or in the trees of this forest? And his students turned to him and say, well, clearly, more in the trees. And he tells them, yes, and that's exactly the way truth works. There are many truths in the world, but the truths I've shared with you are the ones in my hands. And those truths always come back down to the four noble truths of suffering, how it arises, how it passes away, and the path leading away to uh, leading to that passing away, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. And that kind of truth, those kind of truths, are shown to us through direct experience. So direct, so immediate, with right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, that it is this quality of, of pre-thought, pre-speculation, pre-analyzing, because we are seeing very deeply with a still mind, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self, the three marks of existence that are taught in Theravada Buddhism. So some people, when they, when they hear this, they, they come to the conclusion that, that Buddhism is thus anti-intellectual. Uh, uh, many Westerners have this view, because when they hear that, like, well, Western analytical philosophy probably won't enlighten you. What? I, I understand. I had the same reaction. <laughs> and And that isn't the case, that Buddhism is anti-intellectual, because if that were the case, there wouldn't be so many intellectuals drawn to Buddhism. There wouldn't be so many scholars who find purpose, who find meaning in the teachings. But it is so much more than that. So much more holistic. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a way of thinking. It's a way of understanding and a way of being. And that is something that anyone can tap into, not someone who just thinks really big, abstract thoughts. So I would say that uh, the priorities in Buddhism are slightly different than what we find in other traditions, and certainly in intellectual traditions. The intellect is de-emphasized in Buddhism not because It isn't a useful tool, but because knowledge is developed through the intellect, but wisdom is developed primarily through intuition. The Buddhist path does not discount knowledge wholesale, but rather emphasizes understanding. We can see the distinction quite easily when we meditate. So, meditation is an effective tool for developing this type of intimate wisdom. And we find it, I believe, the most readily when we can acknowledge that there is an aspect of concentration, an aspect of tranquility that we need to bring into our mindfulness. The way I've often thought about it is if we imagine the, the mind to be a boat, uh, adrift at sea, then the sea are the thoughts that can, that can just bring it you know, to and fro all over the place. And what the, the, the boat or the ship really needs to be more useful in its investigation is some way of being anchored down for a moment so that it can investigate this part and then move and then investigate this part. Samadhi or samatha can act as that anchor. In my case, the object of breath can act as an anchor, anchoring me to this present moment with this breath and then the next. And from there, opening up my awareness to the various sensations, the various thoughts in my reality and investigating them to find impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. And through that, find wisdom. And that is the kind of insight, I think, that we are talking about in Buddhism, which is not the same thing as thinking. And uh, I believe that is it. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you.